if you didn't pick up this sanctification in everyday life, this is the last part of your outline. It's by Paul Tripp. I will not get to this, more than likely. So you can take it home for your reading pleasure. Uh, Tripp has written a book on doctrine. And he writes first what the doctrine is, and then secondly, what it looks like in everyday life. And it's a nice little book. It's not too detailed, not too overly uh, loaded up with theological terms like this outline is. But there's a reason for that. You should also have the need for sanctification, the outline, the need for sanctification on the back of that is basic views of sanctification compared. You have a Wesleyan, Keswick, Reform, Schaeferian, uh, and the author of the particular book, David Pryor, that's his name. And then there's a repentance exercise that I would trust you would find time to do. It's two pages worth. I don't like it, but I need it. And then there's something, I wrote a little article on Galatians and legalism because I see legalism as a uh, problem, even a serious problem in our churches today. So let's start with prayer. Let us look to the Lord for help. Father, we do thank you for this time together to look at this subject of sanctification. We know that it is probably something we think about a lot because it seems to be the phase we are in at the present time as believers in Christ. Uh, we look forward to our glorification. We look back to our justification and uh, feed on that, but we anticipate our glorification when we will sin no more. So we pray that you would give me the uh, ability beyond that which I naturally possess to communicate this truth uh, in a way that motivates us all to pursue holiness without which no man will see God. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So at the top of your page, I have a definition of sanctification that I just sort of wrote kind of like it. It says, sanctification is the gracious operation of the Holy Spirit involving our responsible participation, which I will tell you up front is mainly faith and repentance. Somebody asked J.I. Packer, what are the conditions of the new covenant? And he said, faith and repentance, faith and repentance, faith and repentance over and over. And so by which he delivers us from the power and pollution of sin, our penalty's already been paid. We will be removed from the presence of it in glorification. Sanctification is deliverance from the power and pollution of sin. Renew renews our entire nature according to the image of God. That is what we would have been in Eden, but glorified, which is even better. You do realize that uh, when Christ returns and the consummation of all things occur, we won't just be back to the status of what Adam and Eve were in the garden because they were innocent but not righteous. But we will, in the uh, kingdom as it comes, be established in righteousness as well and will be glorified humanity, not just created humanity. If Adam had not sinned, then I assume he would have made that move in the garden. But he did sin. 
we all know. All right. It enables us to live lives that are pleasing to him. All right, so let's talk about the need for sanctification. And it's this sheet right here. And then we'll go back to the outline, I think, that's in front of it. This little sheet, the need for sanctification. First, the problem of guilt is addressed by justification. Justification is an act of God's free grace wherein he pardons all our sins, accepts us as righteous in his sight, only for the righteousness of Christ imputed to us and received by faith alone. What was one of the major objections the Catholic Church had to this definition of justification? What was their major concern? If you tell people they are saved by grace alone and that they have the righteousness of Christ, how are we going to get them to be good Catholics? There's no way we can. We, we have no leverage over controlling their behavior, no leverage over controlling how the church is the dispenser of salvation in the Roman Catholic theology. And so they reacted with a knee-jerk uh, to that definition. Now, the problem of corruption sanctification is the work of God's free grace, whereby we are renewed in the whole man after the image of God and are enabled more and more to die to sin and to live unto righteousness. Justification and sanctification contrasted. Justification concerns our guilt. It has to do with our penalty, our legal standing. Sanctification concerns our corruption. Justification is legal, external, and objective. It's called alien righteousness. That's what Luther called it because it is outside of us, not inside of us. Nothing happens inside uh, uh, to enable justification to uh, occur. It is a declaration of God's free grace, whereas sanctification is a process. Uh, justification relates to our position, that is, we are in Christ. Sanctification relates to our condition, that is, sinful. Justification is righteousness imputed. Sanctification is righteousness imparted. Justification has no degrees, that is, a person is either guilty or not guilty. No one is described as slightly guilty or fairly guilty. Sanctification has degrees, that is, some have progressed in the Christian life further than others. Justification is once for all and not ever repeated. Sanctification is a gradual process. By declaration of God the Father, justification is by declaration. Sanctification is by operation of the Holy Spirit. There's no place for works in justification. Our cooperation by moral exertion and personal discipline is most necessary in our sanctification. Does anybody have any question about that? I'm going to tell you something. Every false understanding of the nature of the Christian life that I've ever experienced, because I did most of it, is because you don't get that right there. You don't understand that. And so they either collapse one into the other, or one becomes the other. That is, justification becomes sanctification. Uh, and so most 
errors in the uh, development and understanding of sanctification has to do with people not understanding that they can be distinguished from one another, but they can never be separated. Okay? There's not a single person in the world that God ever declares justified that is not at the very same time being sanctified by the gift of the Holy Spirit operating in our soul. And so tonight I'm going to run through this outline with you. It is a lot of information, a lot of material. I will go until I see you glaze over, which is altogether possible. But I'll try to make it as uh, fascinating as I know how. First, uh, the assumption, even among some Protestants, that is that justification undermines sanctification. That is usually the charge of even some uh, evangelicals, but mostly the Catholic Church. However, this assumption, even among Protestants, presupposes a false choice that the Reformers did not make between the imputation of Christ's righteousness and the renewal of believers according to Christ's image. While Rome simply assimilated justification into sanctification, the Reformation position affirmed both as distinct yet inseparable gifts. G.C. Burkauer, who's great, he's written two books that I think are probably two of the best books I've ever read on sanctification. One is Faith and Justification. The other is Faith and Sanctification. Do you know who Burkauer was? He's a Dutch, Reformed, taught at Amsterdam. I think one of his pupils was R.C. Sproul. So... I don't think R.C. believed everything G.C., because I've read G.C. says some stuff that you want to throw the book against the wall, but he's really good on those two subjects. He's gold, as we say. So, Burkauer replies to those who deny Luther's interest in God's gracious renovation of the believer to anyone who has had a whiff of Luther's writings. This concept is incredible. Even a scary initiation is enough to be convinced that justification for Luther meant much more than an external event with no importance for the inner man. Like the relation of the doctrine of substitution in relation to other aspects of the atonement, forensic or legal justification not only allows room for other benefits of Christ, it is their source and their security. So the Reformers saw Christ for us and Christ in us. Christ for us is the alien righteousness imputed. Christ in us is the sanctifying righteousness imparted. Both flow from our union with Christ. What does it mean to be in union with Christ? Have you ever seen the phrase in the Bible, in Christ? It's in there a lot, is it not? And so union with Christ, once we're justified by faith, we are united to Christ, and then the benefits of Christ become ours, because as uh, Calvin often said, you receive the whole Christ. By the way, if you ever want a really good book to read on this subject, it is The Whole Christ by Sinclair Ferguson. I don't know if you've ever read it. Buy it, read it, 
you'll thank yourself later, maybe even me. But it's a wonderful book. But so we're connected to Christ by faith, and then out of that flows sanctification. But it's still connected to Christ. Those who are justified through faith um, are new creatures. And then there is... Uh, and then there to love God and neighbor, yielding the fruit of good works. Let me read that again. Those who are justified through faith are new creatures and begin then and there to love God, their neighbor, yielding the fruit of good works. Reformed churches agree with some of the Lutheran confessions that if sin has free sway over one's life, the Holy Spirit and faith are not present. That is a bondage or being dominated by sin. If that's true of a person, then it would mean that the Holy Spirit and faith are not present. However, it is not simply that justification and sanctification always go together in the application of redemption as if they were parallel tracks. Rather, justification is the judicial ground of union with Christ that also yields renewal and sanctification. For Rome, we are justified because we are sanctified. For gospel believers, we are being sanctified because we have been justified. In this class, we turn our attention to sanctification as the effect of the evangelical word pronounced upon us by the Father in grace. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by what? There is power in the Word of God to both justify. Remember, Jesus said, sanctify them in the what? Truth? What's truth? Your Word, thy Word, is truth. And so, the preaching of the Gospel uh, creates what it calls for. What does that mean? That's perlocutionary effect. Uh, yeah, perlocutionary. Uh, I don't want to get into that because it would take forever. But what it means, this is my simple definition, it creates what it calls for. When the gospel is preached in the power of the Holy Spirit, it creates faith and repentance in the listener. It creates it. So therefore, sitting under the preaching of the word is not sacramental, but it's pretty close. It's a means of grace. And that the Word of God preached, the Word of God read, the Word of God meditated over. The Word of God is living and active and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword as a critic of the thoughts and intents of our heart. So that's why Reformed tradition has always emphasized the preaching of the Word, meaning expounding the biblical text. You don't have to come up with a sermon. You have to exegete a passage, pray through it, dwell in it, and then come out of that passage, preaching and teaching, that in effect is what the Word of God is saying. But that Word is powerful. It creates life. It's life-giving in the hands of the Holy Spirit. Uh, one thing that you need to remember in the doctrine of the sanctification is this connection between what is called the indicative... And the imperative. So what is indicative? And what is what is the indicative? Does anybody know? What's the truth? 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's a mood in the Greek language which simply describes a certain state of affairs. And the imperative sets forth commands. So what did you say it was? It's what you are. What you are. You'll see in the New Testament, you are righteous. Yeah. Yeah, in other words, who or what you are because of justification that changes your status. The imperative is commands that flow out of the indicatives. In other words, since we're new creatures in Christ Jesus, since we're adopted into the family of God, since we have been baptized into his death and raised again to new life, all of those things are facts, they're truth, they're real, but all the commands of Scripture are always tied to the indicative who you are in Christ, the gospel, okay? That's a simple way to put it, the truth of the gospel. If somebody overloads on preaching the imperatives, what happens? Yeah, yeah. It's moralism or legalism. Somebody overloads on the first, what's the problem with that? Come on, say it. Anti, if they never give any, you know, it's antinomianism or license. I'm going to say anti-law or license or relativism. So, you got to keep both in there. But the indicative uh, truths about us and it's very important to remember that in the doctrine of sanctification. One can swallow up the other. And if it does, then you end up with a bad, in a bad place. Uh, for example, in Romans, Paul first explains who believers were in Adam. That's in chapter 5. And their new status in Christ, justification. Then reasons from the indicative to the imperatives as a logical conclusion. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. Therefore, because of who you are in Christ, then you can obey and respond to the indicative. There is... Uh, you're under a new power. You are no longer under law... But under grace, Paul says, what does that mean? In what sense are you no longer under law? Yes, thank you. As a means to establish righteousness, which would be the covenant of works. Uh, perfect, perpetual, personal obedience to the law. Well, therefore, equal in that uh, calculus, uh, righteousness, salvation. But the, uh, I kind of lost where I was going with that. What did I say? Help me with that. You don't have the notes, do you? Oh, yeah. <laughs> what declares the unjust 
to be just, and how can the apostle tell us that sin has no dominion over us because we are not under law but under grace? Oh, it's talking about under law and under grace. Under grace is what? Is it lawless? No. But it's under a new what? Power. The power of the law was what? Self-effort. The power of grace is our acceptance in Christ. And I want to get away from the idea of grace as impartation because that gets kind of contrary to some of our understanding of the Reformed view of sanctification. I'll pick that up later. Um, as counterintuitive as this may seem to our natural way of thinking, Paul says that the gospel is the answer not only to our guilt and condemnation, but to our corruption and slavery of sin, because it brings us back where? To Christ. Being under grace is being in Christ. And so what happens to us so easily is we can say this in our heads. Sanctification is about me being holy, therefore what? I've got to strive, I've got to you know, use all of my energy and exertion and devotion to be holy, leaving out whom? Christ. And I have to say that most of my early Christian reality as far as sanctification is concerned was exactly that. It was turning to methods and techniques that I thought, I, I didn't realize the nature that faith, you're, you're just as much sanctified by faith as you're justified by faith. Just as much. Absolutely just as much. You never outgrow the need for faith. So sanctification is by faith. Not faith alone, but it's by faith. And it's returning to Christ. Sanctification, in some respects, is returning to your justification and feeding upon that in order to be motivated. So in his hymn, Rock of Ages, Augustus Top Lady spoke of the gospel as the double cure saving us both from sin's guilt and its power. In the act of justification, works and grace are totally opposed. However, once a per person's or our persons are justified, so too our works can be saved in spite of their imperfections. The faith that receives Christ apart from works for justification also receives Christ for works in sanctification. Now, here's the wonderful thing. Have you ever heard the shirt illustration? Uh, there was a little girl who desired to please her father. And her father wore a white Oxford button-down nice shirt to work every day with a tie. And so she helped her mother, and it was a nice, warm, kind of breezy day. And her mother said, well, why don't you take this one and hang it outside, and it'll dry, and then we'll iron it and starch it and whatever. Well, she did it, except she put the wet shirt on a rusty hanger. Now, what do you think happened? It ruined the shirt. At least, unless you washed it again, and I don't know if you could get that out or not. And that little girl, and what she did to the shirt is a picture of you and me trying to do good works. Sin taints everything we do. It does. Nobody can perfectly execute a good work with the right motive for the glory of God with all of your heart. You cannot do it. Nobody can do that. 
Now, somebody asked me one time, well, what would Jesus do in that case? He'd wear the shirt with the rust on it. Why? Because he sanctifies our works to make them good works. I love to think about that. Because uh, I may have some OCD perfectionistic tendencies more than I want to admit sometimes. But that's not your problem, that's mine, right? <laughs> the tyranny of sin over your life has been toppled. Therefore, do not live as though this has not happened. That's the order of Paul's logic. In fact, presenting our bodies as living sacrifice, according to Paul, is our spiritual, reasonable worship in the light of God's mercies that have been explained to the point it is good news that yields good works. Okay, now let's talk about Definitive and progressive sanctification. Because I know you've been wanting to know about that your whole life. Definitive sanctification is what some people call positional. I don't like that word positional. I prefer definitive, mainly because John Murray used it. And John Murray's one of my teachers. Uh, not, I mean, I didn't go to school, but I read a lot of his stuff. Sanctification is grounded in election. The incarnation and redemption, most immediately an effectual calling, justification and adoption, called into this union with Christ by the Spirit through the gospel. The elect are adopted into God's families, joint heirs with Christ, renewed according to the image of their elder brother, in this case, the Lord Jesus Christ. Definitive sanctification is sensitive to the idea of what the word sanctify means. And the word sanctify means essentially, see if I can get better with red here, to, yeah, look at that, separate. To separate or what else? To set apart. If you pay attention, every time we take communion, You'll hear one of the elders pray that the elements will be set apart from what? An ordinary use and set apart to God for the use that the Holy Spirit intends them for. And so definitive sanctification separates or people, places, and things away from their ordinary association for his own use. Although we will come to the sense in which sanctification is more commonly understood as moral renewal, it's important to recognize at the outset that it is God's action of electing, separating, or cutting, claiming a people for himself. It is not the goal that makes the sanctuary sacred, not the gift on the altar that sanctifies the altar, but the sanctuary sanctifies the goal and the altar that sanctifies the gift. Jesus reminded the religious leaders in Matthew 23. Jesus even referred to himself as one whom the Father has sanctified, set apart, and sent into the world. Paul reminds Timothy he's approved that approved ministers in God's house are vessels set apart from ordinary use for special use. And so as John Murray helpfully explains progressive sanctification depends not only on justification, but on God's once and for all act of claiming us as saints. 
So definitive sanctification really has to do with our being set apart, which makes us a what? A saint. Sainthood is not being canonized by the church for doing something amazing. If you're in Christ, you're a saint already. I'm Saint Timothy, by the way. I like to claim that. Uh, so, for many Christians, the change in subject from justification to sanctification roughly corresponds to God's work for us and our work for God, respectively. The result of this assumption, however, is that for a brief moment, the beginning of the Christian life, the focus was on whom? Christ and his blessing of justification that was received through faith alone, itself, in fact, the gift of God. But then, the rest of our life is a matter of striving for moral improvement. I thought when my sins were forgiven, and I had eternal life, now it was up to me to do what? Live the Christian life. And I approached it just the way anybody else would approach learning how to do anything else. The Bible is a manual. The Bible's not a manual. It's not a manual at all. Rather, I was mistaken in thinking that I would master the Christian life like I tried to master anything else I tried to do. Having begun by the Spirit, Paul chided the Galatian church. What does he say? Are you now being perfected by the flesh? Sanctification, like justification, has its source not in the works of the law, but in the hearing with Faith, self-reliance, and self-effort are not the means by which we become sanctified. We are confident that we are holy and being made holy in Jesus Christ simply on the basis of his promise, not because of what we see visibly in ourselves and each other. In sanctification, as well as justification, God the Father is the giver, the Son is the gift, and the Spirit is the one who creates faith when us within us through the gospel. In both, Christ is the object. The gospel is the means of its communication from God. Faith is the means of our receiving it from him. Nor does sanctification require a different act of faith than that exercised in justification. The faith through which we are united to Christ simultaneously lavishes us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And so we are sanctified by faith. And it's huge. Before we can speak of being put to holy use and growing in grace, we must see that sanctification is, first of all, God's act of setting us apart from the world for himself. We are elected in Christ, which is frequently mentioned as the ultimate source of our sanctification. John Webster this is a pretty serious theologian. He just died uh, last year. He said this, The sanctifying spirit is Lord. That is, sanctification is not any straightforward sense, a process of cooperation and coordination between God and the creature, a drawing out of building upon some inherent holiness of the creature's own. Sanctification is making holy. Holiness is properly an incommunicable divine attribute. If creaturely realities become holy, it is by virtue of election, that is, by a sovereign act of separation by the Spirit of the Lord. From the vertical of lordship, there flows the horizontal of life, 
which is truly given. Election to holiness is not the abolition of creatureliness, but in its creation and preservation. Let me say it this way. Sanctification does not make you less human. It makes you more human. More human, not less, more. And hopefully before we're done, I think that should be clear. Sometimes we think, I, I would say this, in terms of identity and in terms of the unique person that God has made you to be, your real self, so to speak, the only way you can ever find your real self is in sanctification. You'll never find it any other way. Because what? Because you're being liberated more and more from the power of sin, which destroys and distorts the image of God in you. But we're all unique, special creatures of the Lord. There's no one else like a snowflake, just like us, unless you have an identical twin, but you're still different. But this is my point. Sanctification doesn't make us weirdos. I mean, it will in this world because we're in the upside-down kingdom. You, you do realize you're in the upside-down kingdom. That everything we think... I had a discussion with my brother today, and apparently he has a daughter who's a lesbian. She's in a mar married to a woman. So that's my niece. I've mentioned her before. And apparently a good friend of my brother's posted on Facebook something about a rainbow and three crosses on a hill. It was a picture and said, we claim, we're claiming the rainbow back for Christianity. And my niece, who claims to be a Christian, got furious because my brother liked it. He liked it. And she just lit into him. And he said, what do I do? I said, well, I said I'd give her a couple of days to calm down and never try to discuss anything with somebody who's furious. I said, then I might call her and say, we're just going to have to agree to disagree on this. You certainly have a right to believe what you do. I have a right to believe what I do. We don't agree here. And, uh, you know, I might even go so far as to say what the ra By the way, what is the rainbow? It's a sign of what? Yeah, but it's really, Yahweh is a holy warrior, right? Warriors use bow and arrows, right? And so the rainbow is the bow pointing up, not down. To bring judgment on us, it's, an, it's a common grace covenant, that's what it is. Uh, the Noachic, I'm sure Dan told you that. when You had covenant with him. All right. And so there is a priority of definitive sanctification. Uh, to Israel, God said that as long as his people obey his law, they will be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. In this same description, then, Peter replies to the church because of Christ's faithfulness, even to those who were not a people and had not received mercy, in his baptism, their baptism is sanctified. In his active obedience, they are holy. And for their sakes, I sanctify myself, says Jesus, so they also may be sanctified in truth. Therefore, in his death, burial, and resurrection, they die and are raised to new life. They have been saved out of the world. Therefore, even before Jesus tells his disciples about their own fruit-bearing life as part of the vine, he declares, already you are clean because of the word 
I have spoken to you. Now, I could go on and on with definitive sanctification. I'm trying to see uh, where I can move on. This is, uh, I read this and I love it so much, but it's so much of it. We only have so much time. So I'm trying to reduce it. I've read it like six times. In his message to the Ephesian elders, Paul said, And now I commend you to God and the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. He addresses letters to the churches as those who are called to be saints, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus. Peter addresses his first letter to Christians in the uh, of the Jewish Diaspora as the elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood and the second letter to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ. All that is found in Christ is holy because it is in Christ. He is our sanctification. The Lord is our righteousness. The sprinkling of Christ's blood is vastly superior to the blood of bulls and goats. In spite of the fact that the Corinthian church had become filled with immorality, strife, division, and immaturity, Paul begins both letters to this body, this is not a great church, <laughs> by addressing them as saints, holy one, and reintroduces the wonder of the gospel. Precisely because their status was defined by the gospel's indicatives, the apostle could call them to repentance as the only legitimate response. Where most people think that the goal of religion is to get people to become something that they are not, the scriptures call believers to become more and more what they already are in Christ. Become, have you ever read this phrase in scripture? Be holy. Why? What that command is, is really become what you are. You see, you've already been set apart to be holy now in space and time by election, by uh, God's work in the uh, pactum salutis you've been you've been redeemed now become what you already are that's sanctification that's holiness become who or what you already are in union with Christ now we'll get to progressive sanctification in a moment um Maybe even now. Let me finish it this way. Sanctification is treated in the New Testament in terms of the already and not yet. At least the distinction between definitive and progressive sanctification flows out of this concept. If you hear somebody mention the already and not yet, more than likely... If they ain't reformed, they're on the way. What does already not yet mean? 
<laughs> well, it means the kingdom has come, but the kingdom has not what? Fully, fully come. So that means our sanctification is already an accomplished fact, definitive, but already what? We're in process. We're not sanctified totally. And won't be in this life. So, you know, you can give that up. You ain't going to reach perfectionist. No matter how our perfectionism friends redefine it. Now let's talk about progressive sanctification. We are moving with such vigor here. We're on point B of point two. And it's quarter till eight. I promise we won't be over time. The New Testament also speaks of the setting apart as an ongoing work within believers that renews them inwardly and conforms them gradually to the image of God in Christ. We are holy, definitive sanctification. Therefore, we are to be holy, progressive sanctification. That's the already. The not yet is being totally... I mean, we already are holy. We're not yet sanctified. Although we are not saved by works, we are saved for works. The power of God is not only at work in Christ for us, but also the power at work within us, so that despite our weakness, Christ's energies are at work within us by his Spirit. Believers are called to pursue purity, to dwell on excellent things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. Such holiness distinguishes itself by producing the fruit of wisdom, purity, peace, gentleness, without partiality or hypocrisy. Already holy in Christ, we are to offer ourselves as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. As stones in the holy temple and those who offer a spiritual sacrifice of holy living. We are holy, therefore, we are to be holy in progressive sanctification. The growth in holiness has its source in God alone. But God works through means. We are called to regularly attend to God's word in public worship, as well as in family and personal meditation on the law and the promises. Claiming God's promise to us in our baptism, we die daily to sin and rise anew in faith and repentance. The indicative, definitive sanctification leads to the imperative, progressive sanctification. Put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has complained against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so that you must forgive. And above all, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. However... We should beware of turning the distinction into a separation where our status as holy in Christ is one thing and our progress in holiness is another. Now listen carefully to this. In our pilgrimage, we are not simply growing in our holiness but bearing the fruit of our union with Christ and His holiness. We are what? A branch abiding in what? Who's the true vine? Jesus. And so that's what produces fruit. Rather, let's say the flesh is not given a new lease on life, improved and elevated and revived. Rather, the Adamic self is put to death 
And the person thus raised is now a participant in the Spirit, sharing with Christ the powers of the age to come. That's how sanctification is eschatological. The powers of the age to come are the powers of the kingdom that will be let loose in their entirety at the consummation, but those powers have already penetrated the present time, and we are subject to those powers by virtue of being in Christ. Now, well, I'll say that in a minute. It's too early to say it. Uh, Thus, our justification in union with Christ cannot be seen merely as a starting point for a life of personal transformation, but as the only source of joy throughout the Christian life. Our mortification and vivification, we'll talk about those in a moment, and sanctification are not our own contribution alongside justification in union with Christ, but are the effect of that new relationship. The reason why you put death to sin, or put sin to death, and the reason why you rise again uh, in in conquest over it is because of the powers of the age to come already impinging and operating on you. You and I want to take credit for having the thought to pray. No. It's the Holy Spirit. Never us. Now, you hear news and your response to it is to pray. But every movement toward God we make, I have about come to the conclusion, I'm not, I'm not absolutely ready to die on this particular issue, but almost every thought of God I have, every um, inclination toward holiness, every de- desire to read the Word and to pray, and to serve others, and to give, is a result, not of me thinking it up, but of the Holy Spirit putting it in. Now, is my participation responsible? Yes. I'm still called to participate. Here's what I'm getting to. Um, sanctification, justification is, is monergistic, only one person working. Many have said sanctification is synergistic. I don't like that. I would call it asymmetrical synergism. Meaning what? God always moves first. Remember that verse in Philippians where he says what? Work out your salvation with fear and trembling because it is God who is at work in you both to will and to do his good pleasure. So that seems to be saying we're responsible for cultivating or working out our salvation. But it's God what? At work in us. Both the willingness and the doing. We can never take credit. Well, God just has a, a, a real bad, I won't say bad, can't say God and bad the same, it's terrible. God has a real persistent uh, annoyance over us boasting, taking credit for what he himself has done. And, uh, you know, so, see where we are on the outline. Uh, Yes, I wanted to read something from the Helvetic Confession, chapter 15. Just listen to this in regard to progressive sanctification. 
Wherefore, in this matter, we are not speaking of a fictitious, empty, lazy, and dead faith, but of a living, quickening faith. It is and is called a living faith because it apprehends Christ who is life and makes alive and shows that it is alive by living works. It's not the quality of faith itself, but the person it apprehends that makes it sufficient means of receiving both our justification and sanctification. Not because of what faith is, but because of who Christ is, faith in Christ cannot fail to bring forth good works. In fact, precisely because believers do not trust at all in their own piety, the works that spring from faith are truly pious. That's pretty powerful. And I think right on, as far as the truth goes. And so, paradoxically, in this very liberation that issues in constant inner struggle, since on the one hand we belong definitively to the new creation, the age to come, with Christ as our first fruits and the Spirit as the pledge, and on the other hand, we still live in this present evil age and continue to pretend that we are not those in Christ has worded uh, God has ordered us to be in Christ. By contrast, the struggle that the unregenerate, according to Williams' aims, is not the striving of the spirit against the flesh, but that of the flesh, fearing flesh, and orderly desire. And so, what he's saying is, and, and I think this is important to remember in sanctification. You can talk about Romans 7 all you want to. Uh, some would say that you know, there's a lot of differing opinions, and when I preach on it, I will talk about those opinions. But here's my view. The description of Romans 7, up into chapter 8, 1 through 4, are normative for the Christian life. It's, you're not, have you ever heard of the carnal Christian theory? Did any of you run into that? I used to call it the caramel Christian theory, but the carnal. <laughs> And the carnal Christian theory was what? You can receive Christ as Savior and live sort of like the Corinthian church. They always backed it up with support from the worst church in the whole New Testament, Corinth, and said that you can become a carnal Christian for years in which you've made a profession, uh, you've received Jesus as Savior, but once then you discover that, God shows it to you, or through some crisis experience, you crown Jesus as Lord, not just Savior. You can't divide Jesus up, by the way. He is a Lord who is a Savior. And he's a Savior who is a Lord. But anyway, there's a division. By the way, Dallas Seminary taught the same thing. Let's just look at these. Uh, uh, look on the page I gave you regarding views of holiness. It looks like this. All right, the Wesleyan view, which obviously came from whom? John, yeah. The nature of justifying faith, the time sanctification begins, the dynamics of sanctification in the process. For the Wesleyan, Jesus' Savior is the first act of grace. Later than justification, a second act of grace, undesirable struggle precedes. Third, decisive act of faith, often filling or baptism of the Holy Spirit. 
process of sanctification, little or none attained perfectly at the point of decisive faith, might be lost, human faults linger, perfect love controls, and sin is totally eradicated. How about that? What a view. What? Yes, it is uh, certainly that. But it's always a separation of what? Justification and sanctification. You only get one, and then you got to get the other one, and it happens when? Later. By what? Some kind of crisis. Evidenced by what? Then and only then do you receive the Holy Spirit. You can't be a Christian if you don't have the Holy Spirit. You can't, you can't have Jesus as Savior and not have the Holy Spirit indwelling in you. So they see baptism as a separate event, as a result of a crisis and a decisive act of faith. It's very similar to some of the charismatic uh, teaching, except the perfectionism. But what they mean by perfectionism is not what? Total perfection, but what? Uh, perfect as far as no known acts of sin in your life. Like you have no knowledge of sinning. You may be sinning. You just don't know. That's the perfection. Yeah, yeah. Unconscious, yeah. Keswick. Anybody heard of Keswick theology? This happened in England. Uh, Major Ian Thomas. Anybody, anybody ever heard of him? Um, guy named Roy Hessian. There were others that were big in the Keswick. John Stott spoke at a lot of the Keswick conventions, although I don't think he classically, I think he challenged them rather than, but they liked him. Uh, not all Keswicks of this are true, but Jesus as Savior is the first blessing. Later than justification, the second blessing with an undesirable struggle proceeding with the sin nature. Decisive act of faith. You ever heard the phrase, let go and let God? That's Keswick theology. Now how do you know if you've ever let go? And how do you know if you've ever let God? You never do. <laughs> it's impossible. Relatively less struggle, even at first. Rededication is probable, necessary. High level of living by faith. Sin nature is subdued. Reform. Jesus, Savior and Lord. The Lord equals confession as master. Immediately following justification, sovereign gradual change by indwelling Holy Spirit who works within us to make believers want to obey. Gradual eradication of sinful tendencies, depravity, Eradication never complete in this life. I don't take eradication view myself, even though I'm reformed. I don't see that our sin nature ever, the only thing that's going to deliver us from our sin nature is death when we leave this body. But I see it more like uh, going into remission, uh, like leukemia. Any of you ever heard of people having leukemia and then goes into remission and they don't seem... I kind of see the sin nature does that. It kind of comes and goes. Sometimes it'll come roaring back. When you think something's not a problem, it can become a problem really quickly. Uh, Schaeferian, which is Dallas Theological Seminary's view, which was also Charles Charles Rowry's view, and maybe, I don't know now, if they still believe this more than likely, Jesus, Savior, Lord, Deity only, uh, sanctification begins later than justification when the believer realizes personal need. You make Christ Lord. How can you make him Lord? He is Lord. Make 
make Christ Lord once and for all, followed by counteraction between old and new natures via the Spirit, gradual growth and holiness, consistent reaffirmation of original dedication. All right. And then the author of the book, he has gradual ascendancy of the Spirit over continuing sinful tendencies. So what I'm trying to communicate to you is, all of that has to do with what you see, the distinction between definitive and progressive sanctification and whether or not uh, they are separated. And they are inseparable. Uh, they are not identical, but they are inseparable. That's a book called The Way of Holiness by David Pryor. I read it in seminary at the urging of one of my professors. I liked it. I thought it was really good, really fair in a lot of ways. Um, I like this section. I want to include this before I move on to eschatology. Um, We all know the statement curved in on ourselves. That's what Luther said, in Curvatus, in say, we're all curved in our, on ourselves and only the power of the gospel can curve us out of ourselves. And once we are accepted by God, we're no longer struggling in our own power to be righteous. Uh, so we have to be called out of ourselves to be judged as ungodly and then dressed in Christ's righteousness. This is necessary for our justification, but for our sanctification as well. Our identity is no longer something that we fabricate in our bondage that we mistake for freedom. To become new means losing what we now call ourselves. C.S. Lewis observes, out of, uh, out of ourselves into Christ we must go. Your real new self, which is Christ, and also yours, and yours, just because it is his, will not come as long as you are looking for it. It will come when you're looking for Christ. To be in Christ is to be very much more yourself than you were before. He invented, as an author invents characters in a novel, all the different people that you and I were intended to be in the sense that our real selves are all waiting for us in him. It is no good trying to be myself without it. To enter heaven, he says, is to become more human than you've ever succeeded in being on earth. And so I think that delivers us from uh, a world of seeking there. All right, let's talk about uh, eschatology simultaneously justified and, you know, that semper ustus et peccator at the same time, righteous or justified and sinful. Uh, Of course, this comes from Luther, who says, the believer remains just and sinner simultaneously, perfectly righteous before God's judgment, yet full of corruption and actual sins. As the sign and seal of our incorporation into Christ, baptism is a one-time event, completing in the past, yet with continuing effects, as well uh, as obligations throughout our life. We believe the indicative promise that we are dead to sin and alive to God in Christ, even though our experience does not always match that reality. Nevertheless, Reformed teaching 
is more pronounced in emphasizing the radical announcement of the already uh, to our ethical as well as the legal relation to God. Now, there's something called underrealized eschatology and overrealized eschatology. Let me just make this simple. Uh, underrealized is making too little of the already. Overrealized is making too much or bringing too much of the not yet into the already. And that's where perfectionism would come in. Does that make sense? It's, uh, let's talk about it a little more because you don't look like you're following. Um, especially against the antinomians, Luther highlighted the inseparable inseparability of faith and good works, but in other places, the absolute newness of the believer's identity. Um, While our failures should send us back to Christ rather than to the law, Reformed theology seems less reticent to encourage believers to be cheered by the newness they actually experience. An underrealized eschatology loses the uh, agonizing paradox of the simul ustus et peccator just as surely as the overrealized perfectionism. We are just as well as sinners, exactly because Paul is in the figure described in Romans 6, not only justified, but also truly alive in Christ, definitively liberated from the tyranny of sin, he is disturbed by the discrepancy between this fact and indwelling sin that he discovers in himself in Romans chapter 7. And so what you're seeing in Romans chapter 7 is participating in two realities. The kingdom that was and the kingdom that is to come. Uh, and so you're caught in the overlap of those two kingdoms. And that's what the struggle is about in Romans 7. So it's eschatological, meaning meaning it has to do with where we are in a redemptive history and the work of God. So God has not yet removed us from that situation, and we can sort of have an over-realized view. So how do we avoid it? In some ways, like medieval Christians, we assume that there are no classes of Christians, those who are common, perhaps even carnal Christian, those who are victorious and truly sanctified. This view reflects an eschatology that is simultaneously underrealized for some and overrealized for others. According to the New Testament, carnal Christian would be underrealized. Perfectionism would be overrealized. That's what I'm trying to get you to see. Some evangelicals teach that believers can become carnal Christians devoid of good works, even of faith itself. In this view, the call is constantly to enter the higher or victorious life of spiritual Christians. However, Paul does not imagine the possibility of a believer being at one period defined by Christ's resurrection life with the tyranny of sin definitively toppled, and then in another period, carnal, and then still in another, victorious. And so the believer described in Romans 6 is delivered completely from the dominion of sin through his baptism into Christ. The same person in Romans 7 who is consistently frustrated by his or her failure to follow the script, and the same person is simultaneously identified in Romans 8 
is not condemned and as alive in the spirit, awaiting the final act, the resurrection of the body and the renewal of creation. Now, let's get to mortification and vivification. We're flying now, aren't we? Still on the first page, isn't it? Well, really, all we got to do is the first page. Let's do more. <laughs> okay. What is mortification? What does mortification mean? Putting to death. Okay. Who is, uh, are any of you familiar with the theologian who probably wrote more on this particular subject than anybody else? John Owen. Any of you ever read his book, The Mortification of Sin? I made the mistake of trying. My brother and I, when we went to the Christian bookstore for the first time, after both of us had sort of come back to the church, and this guy was Reformed. We didn't know it. He even told us he was Reformed. Well, okay, we just thought he was like an alcoholic or something. <laughs> we didn't know. We were stupid. Uh, but he bought the book, Sin, by G.C. Burkauer, which is really a fabulous book. He never read a word of it, I don't think. But he bought it. I have it in my library. It's about that thick. And he said, I believe I need this book <laughs> to understand why I sin like I do. And I bought the book, uh, Mortification, by John Owen. Now, you would know right away today that those were Reformed books. And Vivification is often called... is often called um, something else. I can't think of what it is. Another term. They don't like the term vivification as much today as they used to. But anyway, I remember reading this book, No Lie, in the unabridged, not uh, cleaned up thing. The first sentence of that book was four pages long. And I remember sitting down reading it. And I'd, you know, I'd sort of been away from reading. That wasn't my thing at that time. I don't know, I was 20, maybe 20, 21. And I started reading it and I thought, I don't even know what he's talking about. And you know how you do. You just, I can't remember what. And he would have like five sub points to five more sub points to whatever. But as I've grown, in the Christian life, and people have edited his works down now, quite a few of them. Uh, he talks a lot, and I'm going to quote him here in a minute, about this concept of putting sin to death. And so, repentance and mortification are classical terms for overcoming sinful habits. And they are acts which are not very well understood in our contemporary culture. However, they are essential if we are to effect effectively address our problems and find ourselves changed. Repentance can be defined as turning from sin, while mortification can be defined as putting sin to death. Repentance and mortification most, must take place both at the behavioral level 
and at the motivational level. Working on ourselves and on others, we must address both the works of the flesh and the lust of the flesh, both the external and the internal. The acts of repentance and mortification of sin involve the following. Regular self-examination. We must not repent of sin generally. We must do so specifically. And one of the ways to do so specifically is to see beneath the surface and understand which idol it is that's driving us to this particular sin. Because I believe scripture from reading Romans 1 recently, idolatry is the sin beneath all of our, quote, actual acts of sin, the motivational sin. This requires us to look at our thoughts and actions at the end of the day in determining specific ways in which we have failed to live a God-pleasing life. Uh, then you need to identify the idols of your heart, which underlie specific behaviors. If we're to engage in effective repentance for our idolatries, it's important that we are able to identify them. However, one should not go on an introspective idol hunt. You can overdo it and be just like obsessed with idols. Instead, specific occasions of sin offer an opportunity to reflect on the specific cravings or inordinate desires that rule the heart. For instance, let's say I'm driving the car. And I'm trying to get to an appointment for counseling that I made with someone in the church. And let's say that while I'm driving, uh, some person cuts me off and I run off the road and I'm so mad and angry I can hardly stand it. And my car won't operate. Now why am I so mad? Because this guy cut me off, ran me off the road. Or could there be another reason I might be mad? I'd be late, right. Why would that make me mad? Because it would look like I'm the kind of person who doesn't keep his word, right? That I, I'm defending myself. I want to be seen as a good person who's responsible, who's righteous. And I'm madder about him blocking that from me than I am about actually being cut off. Sometimes we have to take our anger and go, what are you really mad at? Because often it's not what you think it is. Often it's about righteousness. And so that's just an illustration of it. I hope that helps. Now, you might uncover some of your idols by asking diagnostic questions like this. If you are angry, ask, is there something too important to me, something I'm telling myself I have to have? Is that why I'm angry? Because I'm being blocked from having something I think is necessary when it's not? If you are fear fearful and badly worried, is there something too important to me, something I'm telling myself I have to have? Is this why I'm so scared? Because something is being threatened which I think is a necessity when it is not. I have every one of these. If you are dependent, or despondent, not dependent, or hating yourself, is there something too important? Something I have to have. Is this why I'm down? Because I've lost or failed at something which I think was a necessity, which is not. Consider the horror of your sins and idols. We must come to see the ugliness of our sin and its ruling desires. As one writer has said, repentance is not the wringing of the hands or the hanging of the head, but a working of the heart until sin becomes odious to us more than any consequence could be. 
We must strive to see the guilt. Sin put Christ to death. Don't dare say it's not so bad. The danger of our sin, if we don't deal with it, will become hardened in them. You will become nearly impossible to change. And they will bring ruin into your life. The evil of the sin grieves the Holy Spirit and foils the love of Christ. Jesus is wounded afresh by our sin. John Owen, remember him? John Owen suggests that we look to him whom we have pierced and be in bitterness. Say to your soul, what have I done? What love, what blood, what grace have I despised and trampled on? Is this the return I make to the Father for his love, to the Son for his shed blood, to the Holy Spirit for his grace? Is this how I requite the Lord, having defiled the heart that Christ died to wash, that the blessed Spirit has chosen to dwell in? What then can I say to my dear Lord Jesus? Do I count communion with him of so little value? I have despised love, mercy, goodness, peace, joy, consolation. I've despised them all as a thing of naught that I might persist in sin. And then, put your idols to death. Sometimes the urge of sin gets so great that we feel like we have to blow off steam to be healthy. But after we've sinned a little, we can go back to pleasing God. But the biblical view of human nature is better likened to a house with mice in the walls. If you're getting rid of mice... You don't feed them a little in hopes that by being nice they will go away. <laughs> Instead, you starve them. You don't leave anything around for them to feed on. We are to be ruthless with our sin in the same way. To treat sin lightly or casually is to make yourself its ongoing victim. Put those actions and attitudes which are part of a God-pleasing life or put those on. It's not enough to stop sinful behaviors. We must also engage in corresponding behaviors. For example, if a love of money has led us to steal, we must not only stop stealing, but be generous toward others. And above all, or all the above ought to lead to the conclusion that repentance is far more than saying, I'm sorry. It can be a slow and painstaking process. However, ultimately, it brings life. And so that is the repentance side of faith. So once we repent, then the Holy Spirit, there's vivification like is what? Resurrection. You speak of the Christian life as both what? Dying and what? Rising. We die with Christ and we rise again. Now, where are we on the outlines? I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to give you a break. I will produce the materials for legalism and antinomianism that I think are important for you to have. The law of the Christian life, let me just quickly say this. The law in the hands of sin is a terror to our lives. What does the law do? It exposes us. It what? It even exacerbates and aggravates sin. But the law in the hands of spirit, the Spirit is what? Life and peace. It's joy. So we as Christians believe in the third use of the law, Reformed Christians. We do believe that the law has application 
to our lives and that we are to practice what is called the third use of the law. First use of the law is what? Restrain wickedness. Second, show us our need for Christ. Third, yeah, it, it is, here's what the law does. We say that we are to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength and love our neighbor as ourselves. And what the law does is tell you how to do that. You ever thought about it that way? The law defines the boundaries of the way in which we do both love, but in the hands of the Spirit, it becomes for us life. We delight in it. We have a desire to be 100% obedient. That's short, but that's all I was going to say. Any questions by anyone? Sorry I didn't get it all covered. I knew I wouldn't. Thought I would get further down the road than this. But I hope you got something of the flavor of it, okay? Sanctification is a process. It's not an event. And don't be discouraged if you find yourself in struggle. What does struggle mean in the Christian life with sin? It means you've been regenerated. It means, do unbelievers struggle with sin? No. They might struggle with the consequences of it, but no. The very fact that we have struggle with indwelling sin should encourage you. The very fact that you know about it, you sense it, you grieve over it, is a sign of life. And so the reality of the man in Romans 7, verses 12 to 25, and the man in Romans 8, 1 to 4, are the same guy. Okay? We are... Paul says, I do what I don't want to do, and what I don't, uh, what I want to do, I don't do, because I find a principle of what? Sin dwelling in me. And he goes on and on and struggles with it. And if you've not lived that tension, I don't even know if you're alive, spiritually. Because that's just, I know other people try to make it refer to Paul as under the law before he was a Christian. I don't see it that way. But the wonderful thing about it is, while it is, the struggle is intense and it feels bad, doesn't feel good, doesn't feel spiritual, but it demonstrates that even Paul himself had this struggle and that life is present, otherwise there would be no struggle, and that there is now no condemnation to what? People who struggle like that. We're not under the condemnation of God. God doesn't dislike us because we struggle with sin. He doesn't write us off. He doesn't despise us. He doesn't say we're not worth the trouble. He's continually working on us. Well, thank you for coming. I know that was rather long, but it'll be shorter next week. Okay, let's pray. Father, thank you for our time together. We pray your blessings upon us as we think about what it means to be sanctified and the process of the Christian life of growing in holiness. And we pray that we would be diligent in the use of means uh, and that we would always remember that we are in union with Christ, we are rooted in Him, and that through faith we access all of the benefits that He has for us. And this we pray in Jesus' name, amen.